0: Isn't it thrilling to be able to come together on a peaceful evening as we are tonight? As always, we're so appreciative and thankful for each and every individual that assembled here this afternoon. Our membership, our visitors, those who've come our way, we're just so delighted that all of us have the disposition in mind and the desire and heart to come together in a moment like this one. As we do so, these songs have been so encouraging They have each set us on a course for a marvelous beginning to this week, this first day of it today. And the prayers that we have already prayed today, this morning, and tonight have been so encouraging and uplifting. And certainly our consideration of the Word of God is always a very fruitful and beneficial thing as well. As you probably can see, tonight's lesson involves a rather interesting pair of topics. God on the one hand and mathematics on the other. It certainly is safe to say, as we contemplate at least somewhat the direction that this lesson may go, probably there are lots of things racing across your mind at this moment. What development might Randy make with this, and what kind of considerations might in fact come from it? I hope that as we develop some of the thoughts like these, I wanted to begin it like this. It would be a bit naive to think that mathematics is the favorite subject of every student, even all of us gathered in this room. Maybe adding and subtracting and multiplying and dividing weren't your favorite subjects in school. Maybe you liked English better. Maybe we all like P.E. best of all, I guess, and lunch. But suffice it to say, there are fractions and decimals. Then as one gets to later high school mathematics, there might well be algebra and geometry and trigonometry and other possibilities. And then if our students go to college, there are things heaped even on top of that. Again, the fairness would certainly be to say those subjects may not have been the most favorite, but nonetheless, they truly do speak about some very marvelous considerations reminding you and me alike about some of the great attributes of God and the characteristics of His revelation. I'd like you to journey with me tonight as we give some thought to God in mathematics. You'll notice at the bottom of that slide, I hope that the insight that we each garner and glean could in fact be a very prompting thing for all of us as we contemplate the matter of the Bible and, of course, the nature of God Himself. On to this next slide. It is certainly no revelation to any of us that the very nature of God's inspired will is presented very frequently in the context of numbers. Numbers. That is to say, many of the powerful contemplations and the actual truth you and I find in the Word of God is couched in the language of mathematics. There are numbers that easily represent some truths. And I would ask you to, at least in a passing character, think about one or two or, yea, those on this slide with me. As you start at the very top of that, you notice that the text of the Bible very quickly reminds us There were six days of God's creative activity. You and I know so well that that is a bedrock so often pointed to not only in the books of Genesis and Exodus, but quite a few thereafter. And that is an inviolable consideration. It wasn't five and it wasn't seven. It was exactly six days. You notice that the directness and the consideration of that matter is thus a powerful consideration in truth, isn't it? All of the modern considerations of evolution, geological, astronomical, or otherwise, will never change what the Bible says. It was six days, not a minute less or more. But you'll notice that only leads us to so many others. We arrive not many chapters thereafter to a consideration of 40 days of torrential rainfall in which that coupled with the breaking up of the fountains of the great deep, there came, of course, a worldwide flood that covered the entirety of this planet and every landmass on it. Notice again, 40 days was very carefully prescribed. Not a single day more or less. Maybe the third one. We've been studying on Sunday morning in our Sunday morning Bible class the features and the matters touching the dispatching of 12 spies. Ten of them came back. Notice... Five out of six of them, 83%, said we cannot take it. However, the other 17%, by all means, we can take it. A tremendous consideration, don't you think, relative to some numbers again. The majority, of course, was in the wrong. The majority was mistaken. The majority was faithless. On to the next one, the Babylonian captivity a particular consideration that is a highlighted feature of many of the late books of the Old Testament. We read about it in Jeremiah and a host of the prophets. As we think about those, remember it was 70 years. It was not 65. It was not 75. The Almighty God of heaven had foreordained. He had made statement that it would be 70 years and that it was We're even told in 2 Chronicles 36 the significance of the 70. Where did God come up with that number? It is an interesting study in the faithfulness of God toward His commandments and His desire that man always obey them. As you think about all of these with me, isn't it impressive how many numbers we find in the Bible? As you and I make a consideration to the next one, we come to the ninth chapter of the book of Daniel. Surely that must be lifted high and elevated to an incredibly marvelous prophetic passage. In fact, that is the single most carefully written passage reminding those of that day exactly when the Messiah was going to come. They knew precisely from the time that the rebuilding of Jerusalem was to begin, it was to number 69 and a half days. All they had to do was count forward the understanding of what those days represented. They would know exactly when the Messiah would be born and the time frame of His work. And Jesus the Christ came in exactly when Daniel said He would. He lived exactly as long as Daniel said He would. And He carried forth the great efforts and labor of mediation between God and man, just as Daniel said He would. Numbers. What about the next one? Aren't all of us, from the time we first encounter until the time we pass from this life into the scenes, the one after this one... Aren't we all impressed with the uniqueness and the oneness of God's system? There is one body, Ephesians 4 verse 4. And he goes on as if that isn't itself impressive enough to say that there's one hope and one spirit and one Lord and one faith and one baptism and one God. There is but one of all of them. Though men may not like it, though men may often question it, Though men may often assert what is opposite to it, that does not alter nor change what is the number one in God's inspired and revealed will. As we come near the bottom of this slide, I would ask you to think about the book of Revelation and how frequently numbers find tremendous meaning in that book. The seven seals and the way in which they're loosed beginning in Revelation chapter 6 and the way that goes all the way through Revelation 11. One by one, as those seals are loosed and other numbers, of course, enter into the consideration, it is a tremendous recognition of God's timeless truth. I thought at the bottom we might just appreciate some quick observations about various numbers in the Bible. Our youngsters begin at an early age to know their numbers. They can count to five or perhaps to ten. And, of course, as they mature and grow, they soon can count far higher than that. But have you ever pondered the basic great things about those small numbers in the Bible? The number one. We just learned in Ephesians chapter 4 about one faith and one church and one baptism. What about the next number? There are two great biblical divisions. Two, the Old Testament and the New. And thus it becomes an important thing for any individual to realize the distinction between those covenants. The fact that today we do not live beneath those previous ones in terms of law. Two covenants. No wonder the Hebrew writer then in Hebrews chapters 8 and following will highlight an old and a new covenant. An old and a new testament. You'll notice as you come to that one, what about the number three? It is still a majestic truth to appreciate that there are three persons in the Godhead. God the Father, and God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, and yet they each, of course, are one in the sense of the unity descriptive of them. But three persons characteristic of that marvelous deity. One, two, three. What about four? As you and I begin the New Testament, it is still an overwhelming consideration to never forget that there are four gospel accounts. Matthew and Mark and Luke and John. And these gospel accounts give us biographical information of the greatest life ever lived, Jesus the Christ. We learn about His teaching. We learn about His work. We learn the way He interacted with individuals. And, of course, we learn that He went to the cross. And we learn that He was resurrected. And we learn, of course, that great gospel system that one life came to tell us about. Four gospel accounts. The number five, what about the five wise virgins and the five foolish ones in Matthew 25? What a great recollection of the power of the number five and the importance of being amongst the wise and not amongst the foolish ones. The lesson, of course, was to be prepared and to live in such a way that one, of course, can in this life ready to go and be with the Lord forevermore. The number six, we've highlighted it already the six days of God's creative activity. When you and I reflect upon Genesis chapters 1 and 2 and those six days and what God fashioned on each day and the order in which He did it, those are still incredible truths and our youngsters learned them and may all of us, even though we're older, never forget the creative record of Genesis chapters 1 and 2. The number seven, we've highlighted it previously, In fact, I chose here to list the seven seals, but you know there are many other sevens in Revelation. The seven bowls and the seven vials and the seven spirits, just to name two others. When we think about those, might I ask, what about the number eight? Does anything in the Bible come to your mind as you reflect upon the occurrence of the number eight? I'm sure we could each, in just a matter of moments, quickly list some things. I chose this one. Eight things that God hates. We have in Proverbs chapter 6, seven of them listed. We notice in Malachi chapter 2, God hates another thing too, and that's divorce. Inappropriate divorce. One by one, these things that God hates, highlighting that it is not in accordance to His will. And how often He encourages thus the human family to in fact stay clear of those activities that are not healthy for us and not in accordance to that which He has informed us about. Number nine, isn't it quick to recollect in Luke chapter 17 the nine lepers who did not return to say thank you? Jesus healed these and only one of them came back. And wasn't it Jesus who said, were there not ten cleansed? Where are the nine? The Lord was inquisitive even about the placement and the location of the nine. Where are they? Isn't that still a great lesson encouraging thanksgiving, or at least an attitude of thankfulness in all of us. Finally, the number 10. The children of Israel, as you and I have been studying in Numbers, 10 occasions of rebelliousness, 10 occasions of their dissolution before God are mentioned. We can read about that in Numbers, of course, chapters 13 and following. When we think about the Numbers... I stopped at 10. You might on your own see how many more, 11 and 12. Some numbers are easy. Some are more challenging. However, there are some numbers that are much bigger in some ways. I've listed one. We will add many others. I've always thought, and I'm sure you have as well, when God made observation about the numbers in His book, Those numbers carried, of course, the record of inspiration. After Jesus was resurrected, He told Peter and the others to cast on one side of the boat and they caught not just an arbitrary number of fish, 153 fish. I'm sure there's something very specific, something very interesting about that number. Maybe a mathematician could share with us about the group characteristics of a number like that one. That's perhaps a subject for a different time. Point is, the numbers in Scripture. What about the number of individuals on the vessel on which Paul was also riding as they were voyaging to Rome? In Acts chapter 27, 276. The Bible gives you and me information relative to numbers like that and it carries with it important, divinely provided information. The number of days that Ezekiel laid on one side, 390. Ezekiel 4, verses 4 through 6. These numbers continue to be astounding as we never forget that God has couched His truth in terms of numbers. As we leave that slide then and seek to apply some lessons from all these numbers we find in the scriptures, I thought you might start with this slide with me. Moving from top to bottom on that slide. What purpose, what role does mathematics serve? Why do we encourage our youngsters to take math classes? Why in fact does the curriculum of our boards of education require that they take it? It isn't left to them as an option. In many cases, if it were, they probably wouldn't take it. But you and I know that it's for their benefit and for their well-being because among other things, some of these statements are now before us. Numbers have an incredible way of sharing with us the fact of truth. Consider it with me. Three plus two is five. It doesn't matter what I think about it. and It doesn't matter what you think about it. The sum of two and three is always and incontrovertibly the number five. It is not to be seen or taken any other way. It's not left to subjective opinion. No consensus or discussion or conference of any kind will ever change it. It is truth. Now, there are those who may disagree with it. Someone might make the statement, two plus three, perhaps it's six, and the teacher no doubt would kindly say, I think you've multiplied and not added The youngster is mistaken. The teacher would kindly attempt to correct so that he or she could understand the nature of the mistake. Maybe all those thoughts are reminding us that mathematics is used to contrive and to set before us the certainty with which this natural world that God has fashioned is set before us and made. That's one of the grand things today about the features concerning mathematics. When we study nature around us, we find that the language in which God has written so many of the matters and laws is mathematical. Case in point, when engineers want to build a bridge, they want to construct it with safety, of course, so that traffic and those that walk across it can do so without fear of it crumbling or falling They use mathematics to describe the properties, the characteristics, the development, and the design. And that mathematics is in accord to the structure that God has embedded in this universe. What about electric circuitry? When those individuals manufacture cell phones, maybe many of us have a cell phone, we understand that in that little box is a set of electric circuitry governed by the principles described by way of mathematics. And they work successfully. They work well because they're in harmony with the fabric of this universe that God has fashioned. They're consistent with it. And hence, whether it be bridges or electric circuits, or even sending men to the moon. In July of 1969, when for the first time a human being set foot on the moon... What an overwhelming event as a triumph to human ingenuity and human endeavor. But think about the mathematics involved in the designing of the spacecraft, the plotting of its orbit, the nature of its movement through space to the moon. A great deal of mathematics was employed and successfully at that. Because again, mathematics describes this universe that God has fashioned. It should give us an appreciation and a somewhat deep one at the nature of math. Look at the bottom of that if you would. You and I could continue to list so many things, and time will fail us to list more than just a few. You can think about earth and its motion around the sun. I've listed briefly these comments. We know it takes a bit over 365 days on average. We also know that it travels about 580 million miles in one circuit around the sun. Our God orchestrated a universe, Earth and its path and its motion, such that those are descriptive characteristics of that path. As you can see on this particular slide, you can ponder these possibilities. What if Earth's orbit were slightly different? What if it were a little bit closer to the sun? What if it were a little bit further away from the sun? It doesn't take too much difficulty to arrive at mathematical prediction that if it were much closer or much further away, either the temperature on the surface would be much hotter or much colder. But either way, the features of the surface would be far different. It seems as if God designed very carefully the placement of this planet to make it inhabitable. Isaiah forty-five eighteen to put it in a position such that life could not just exist but thrive here. We don't live on some cold and barren and barely considerable kind of planet. Surely in light of those things, we could think about the moon and the mathematics of it. I simply would like to share with you a picture. I mentioned a moment ago about the orbit of the earth around the sun... Here is one artist's rendition of it. You can easily appreciate that as we whirl our way through space, we do so following an orbit that God, through the mathematical laws we now understand, put in place. Maybe another picture is one that we can develop as we give thought to some of these ideas. The Bible frequently makes mention of certain three, certain groups and certain entities and the mathematics that go with them. I've just selected a very few. Quite often in the Old Testament, we read about the so-called Pleiades. And it was in Amos 5 verse 8, for example, that the Old Testament writer especially made reference to this. But Amos wasn't the only one. Job made reference to them as well. But what is this Pleiades? Remember, this was an ancient time long before they had the telescopes and the modern kinds of optical systems like that that we have today. But you'll notice it was a group of seven stars, prominent at certain seasons of the year and easily recognizable in the ancients even knew about them. Even the Bible writers referred to the Pleiades, these stars. Surely, as you think about them... You'll notice yet another thing is mentioned, Orion. One more time, we find it in the Bible, in Job 9 verse 9. Another group of stars, this group of stars, think about how far away they are. Joel read for us a moment ago the fact that God knows the name of every star. Think about the millions and millions of them that fill our galaxy, and yea, that fill the entirety of the universe, and yet God knows all of them by placement and by name. They're not foreign to Him. They're not beyond the capability of His knowledge. We in astronomy, of course, are so limited compared to what God would know. Whether you think about Orion or the Pleiades, may I submit to you that these considerations of math bring us to these matters at the bottom of the slide. I list these very briefly. Perhaps it would take us a little much feel to discuss them in detail, but I'd like you to just be impressed with them because they are a part of this universe and they are the way that God orchestrated it. One of the things that I try to teach to my students or at least encourage them to keep in mind is features touching these When one can utilize the laws of science, those are the handiwork of what God has done. Man didn't just invent these things. They are God's invention and we've just figured them out. They are the very blueprint that God used to orchestrate His universe. Newton's laws of motion, three of them. I demand my students know what they are so that they can solve problems with them. But to them we might well add, there are certain things that are conserved. It never ceases to be a remarkable truth to consider the fact of what it does it mean to say that something is conserved. It means that it doesn't change over time. Whatever its value is now is the same as its value at some future time. It doesn't change. It's conserved. God has blessed us with a number of such entities, not the least of which momentum. The momentum that a particular object has now will be the momentum it'll have at some time in the future. Beyond momentum, you can add to that things like mass and energy, angular momentum, and the list goes on. Think about how different our universe would be if God hadn't organized it in a way to where things were conserved. If gravity tomorrow were different than it is today... How could an engineer ever design a safe bridge? He wouldn't know tomorrow what kind of design to use. If the human body and the internal mechanics were different tomorrow than today, if each new generation of children had different internal organs and were, in fact, related differently, think about how confusing and how difficult that would be. Medicine could not develop. These other sciences could not develop. But isn't it still remarkable that God not only has organized His universe in a way that's systematic and in a way that you and I can use equations to describe, but we can employ them to develop even greater insight into the universe itself. Surely, as you think about the bottom, mathematics can teach us something about the God that made all of this. If mathematics, among other things, highlights the nature of God's certainty and the nature of the wonders that he has fashioned and made. Maybe we can look at a few more of these pictures. A moment ago, we referred to the Pleiades. There's a particular picture of the Pleiades, those stars. There's Orion. As you look at that, at various seasons of the year, now surely this is a blown-up little picture. You might have to look a little more with, with a greater degree of difficulty to see them. But these are those particular features, and remember, the Old Testament Scriptures make reference to them. Just to give you another feeling for some of the mathematics, that we find embedded in the nature of what is the wonder of what God has made. We noted a moment ago things like bridges and electric circuits and spacecraft. You and I know that sometimes the considerations of the mathematics might be extensive, Here's just a very minor set of certain equations, and individuals who are skilled know how to use them to design amazing things. All of us can use like cell phones, like television, like telephones themselves. The characteristics of antennas and how radio signals can propagate, these equations describe those things. You and I may not know all about them. We may not know much about them at all. But can't we be thankful that the God of heaven has put in place a system, a universe, in which recognized small relative equations can be used by the human family to design, develop, and invent tremendous things. Mathematics. We hinted at this earlier in the lesson, but let's now develop it a bit more carefully. One of the things about mathematics that's so very encouraging and so very impressive has to do, of course, with its relation to truth. You just can't argue with numbers. The number one is not the same as the number two, no matter how long we wait, no matter how much we argue, no matter what type of perspective we take. One is one and it shall never be two. By the way, that same of course is true of other numbers. And yet, thus, when God has designed His universe and delivered to us the truth, how well we can now understand the simplicity of some of the mathematics of the Bible. When we read then about the plan of salvation, notice I said the plan. That doesn't mean there's two, it doesn't mean there's three. There is one plan for salvation from sin. How many deaths then were died relative to the cross? The Lord died one time, not two, not half a dozen. Any kind of consideration then that militates against, the consideration of the numbers that God has revealed must be forfeited and abandoned and it must be rejected. Surely then in light of these numbers we find then some places when you and I will stand four square on the truth of God's Word because the numbers will not allow it any other way. Those six days of creation we mentioned earlier. Although the largest number, I suppose, of the human beings currently on earth would quickly say, I don't believe it was six days. It had to be a lot more. We'll take our stand on six days because God said it. And that number is a clear pattern of what He has revealed. And it is not open for our discussion. And it is not open for our consideration and negotiation. It doesn't matter what science or anybody else says. Truth is still truth. When you and I then think about mathematics, the truth that you and I see in the world about us should remind us about the truth we find inherent in the numbers of the Bible. For example, we noted earlier that 2 plus 3 is still 5. That means that when we encounter the numbers of Scripture, we appreciate the certainty and the truth housed in them. As you look at some of those next ones, you can quickly remember with me how many places, both Old and New Testament, that numbers presented something definite and God expected the human creation to respond when He gave instructions to build the Ark of the Covenant. I would ask you to remember the dimensions God gave. Question, did He expect them to build that Ark precisely how long and how wide and how tall that He said He did? And you and I know the answer is yes. How frequently did He punish individuals sometimes with death for their violation of and transgression to His commandment? The Ark was supposed to be built, that Ark of the Covenant, precisely as God said. Noah's Ark, back in Genesis chapter 6, God told him how long, how tall, and how wide to make it. Noah was expected to build it exactly as God said. The church of today... Isn't it supposed to then be organized? Isn't it supposed to worship? Isn't it supposed to involve itself exactly according to the numbers and the other details God has given? And to ask that question is to answer it. We know that it's yes, isn't it? Maybe as we come near the bottom of that slide, the numbers by now you probably have thought of so many others. Whether it be the three days and three nights, our Saviors in the tomb... Whether it be the uniqueness and the exclusiveness of the pathway to the Master, Acts 4.12, or whether it be the uniqueness of the church, we need to always keep in mind the numbers of the Bible. So far in the lesson this afternoon, early this evening, we've looked at God in mathematics and we have found that that mathematics testifies to a certainty and to a truth. And so it is in the Bible that we find the certainty of God's revelation. And the numbers are a part of that, but they're often such a powerful part where you and I can easily see the simplicity and yet the certainty of it. Let me close the lesson then, if I might, by at least considering or asking you to consider with me the following. With a definiteness attached to numbers, we learned earlier that the sum of three and two is five What then should be said on those circumstances and in those occasions when someone has a differing answer to that? When a child perhaps says that 2 and 3 is 4 or 2 and 3 is 6, we all understand that a parent or a teacher would kindly attempt to correct the student. No one would reasonably say, you did your best, that'll be good enough. For everyone understands that to say that 2 plus 3 is 6 may come back later to be a great problem for that student. No one would accept that. And yet, think about the application to religion. The Bible upholds the fact that there's one baptism, and yet some in the world today say there's not. Some say there's no baptisms. Now, who is right? Are those who say that one is right, or those that say that neither? We understand the definiteness of a number will not permit both to be correct. Either one is right and one is wrong, or both are wrong. It can't, be, it can't be the case both are right. And you and I know that due to the definiteness with which God's will has been asserted, there is one baptism, for He said so. Ephesians 4, 5. When you and I give thought to how sweet that kind of thought is, it helps us appreciate that God's Word is exactly what He intended it to be. And thus, you and I must follow this pattern. Study to show thyself approved unto God, a workman that needeth not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the Word of Truth. To rightly divide it, to appreciate its numerical information and all the other information too. To close that slide and turn to the next one, brings us basically to the last observation and to the conclusion. Of the lesson tonight, I would ask you to think one final time that there is one hope. And you and I look forward to that hope because in Colossians 1.5, that hope is identified as heaven. That's what we look for. That's what we long for. That's what we yearn for, to recognize that one hope. Tonight, do you have that one hope? Do I have it? You notice that the number one is attached to it. Living on this earth has a lot of blessings with it, but they pale in comparison to the one hope to which we long, that hope of the sweet home of heaven after this one. Tonight, if you aren't a faithful Christian, let the numbers of the Bible urge and remind you to appreciate there is a definiteness to what God has said. It doesn't matter what you or I think. All that matters is our obeying what He has said. Probably the greatest single difficulty the world wrestles with is they want to negotiate with God and He is in no position to negotiate. His will is certain. It is tried, to borrow the words of Proverbs 30 verses 5 and 6, that means it is certain and it is not changeable. Thus have I obeyed it? Have you and are you and I obeying it faithfully day by day? I hope the numbers we've studied tonight remind us of just how important the definiteness of the Bible is. The plan of salvation, then, is this. It may sound rigid, but it's because it's what God has affirmed. Every single being that's accountable must believe Jesus to be the Son of God, John 8, 24. Every accountable being must repent of his or her sins, commanded in Acts 2, 38. Every accountable being must confess the name of Jesus as the Son of God, demanded in Romans 10, verses 9 and 10. And every being accountable in character must be baptized for the remission of sins. That's definite, it's fixed, and it's not open to compromise. That commandment that you and I find in 1 Peter 3.21 leads us then to notice once an individual does this and begins that walk of Christian life, what to do if one becomes unfaithful, if one apostatizes? Thankfully, we know that answer. If sins are of a public nature, make confession of them and beseech the prayers of faithful brethren to pray on your behalf. Tonight, we could help you in any of these ways. If tonight, anyone will be subject to the gospel call of invitation, God in mathematics, the definite plan of God, may we appreciate and love it, And may we ever strive to live in harmony with it. If we could help anybody in your public response tonight, don't delay, but why not come while together we stand and while we sing.